Hi, I'm Helen Avery. And I'm Ryan Jude. And you're listening to Green is the New Finance from the Green Finance Institute. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Ray Durrani, Head of Sustainable Finance at the World Wildlife Fund, about how we urgently need the finance sector to reinvent its relationship with nature. Since 1970, losing on average 68% of wildlife is a staggering number, and it's not only going to affect you know, when you're on holiday and what animals you'll see or what habitat we've lost, as, as tragic as that is, it's affecting our entire financial economic system and our way of life. So welcome everyone to episode four. Ryan, it's really great to have you back. How are you? Good, thanks. It's good to be back. Um, really enjoyed your last episode. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. And uh, are you looking forward to diving into it with Ray today? Really looking forward to, to speaking to Ray. Yeah, I think I um, speak for both of us when I say that we are both really excited to share our guest with you, the listeners today. Um, you may have seen Ray in the new film, Our Planet, Too Big to Fail, from the minds behind the David Attenborough-fronted Netflix series, Our Planet. You know how I've been raving about this film for the last few weeks. Not going to lie, I've just watched it again in preparation for the podcast. Oh my God, how many times is that now? (laughs) I don't know, five, maybe six. (laughs) But this particular film calls on the financial sector to support our natural environment. Yeah, and they've got a great cast of names in the film as well. Um, I'm not going to give any spoilers and say who they are. If you want to find out, you're going to have to go and watch it. But it really was a who's who of the names in the nature and finance worlds. Yeah, it's really impressive and good representation from the UK too. Yeah, definitely. Ray is, of course, one of those featured in the film, but more than that, Ray is an ex-investment banker who used to work at Merrill Lynch and is now using his experience in the finance world to head up the Sustainable Finance Division at WWF. So to hear more on that and to talk through the key messages of the film, let's get Ray in. So welcome to the podcast, Ray. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me. Doing very well. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, it's great to have you here, Ray. Thanks. So Ray, look, before we dive into the documentary, just wanted to get a little bit of background on you. So, you know, mainly what is it that made you leave a career in investment banking and then want to join WWF UK? That's a good question. So I, when I left banking, I didn't really know what my next stage was going to be. I I just got to a point where uh, I wanted to have uh, more meaning in my life and try to work on, you know, one of the big problems of our time and tried to make a bit of a difference myself uh, and didn't really see the path in banking at the time. Um, although now, of course, with the rise of sustainable finance, I, I, I may have. Um, so kind of left banking, um, didn't know what I wanted to do, but wanted to learn more about the environmental crisis and um, and therefore studied a, a degree in environment and development. And then that led me to, to a job at WWF and they were looking for someone with kind of finance sector background that can engage the sector and um, it made sense for me. And I'm very happy with the switch I made. And out of interest, what does a day in the life of the head of sustainable finance at WWF look like? Good question. Um, I, there is almost no typical day, I think, um, especially now um, with uh, people working from home. Um, it's a mix of sort of policy and regulatory work with also now a bit more um, public facing work as well. Um, working with other NGOs, working with industry, helping the team work through kind of crunchy technical issues or barriers. Um, so it's a really good mix. And I think um, and I think just also adding to that is working with our experts on climate or fresh water or food. Um, I think that makes um, uh, the day very enriching and um, always learning something new. And presumably the environmental sector has 
long known the impact that finance plays on nature. So how do you think the finance sector is now warming up to understanding its connection to nature? Well, I don't think the environmental sector has known for a long time the impact finance can have. I think even that is a fairly recent phenomenon, the fact that engaging with banks and investors um, and getting them to engage companies, getting them to change the way they do business can have a sort of lasting impact on the planet. I think that even within the, the NGO environmental space is fairly new. That now combined with also a very recent kind of awakening within the finance sector of the, the need to act um, why they need to act and um, both the business reason to do so, but also sort of the ethical moral reason rising quite rapidly. So I think it's a it's a great moment to, to push this agenda. And there's certainly less resistance externally, um, as you intimate, on, um, on driving this change. Talking about pushing the agenda onto the documentary, um, firstly, Ray, I have to say, I think it's amazing. Um, we spend our time yeah, talking really about the importance of finance in this struggle and a film which will get that into the mainstream. You know, we think it's great. I've already had lots yeah. of friends who have no connections to finance world watching it and saying how powerful it, it actually is. Um, but look, the point of today isn't just for us to praise it. It's to hear a little bit more about it. So can you share with us the intention behind Our Planet Too Big to Fail and what it is that you hope to achieve with the film? Thanks, Ryan. No, it's always great to hear when when people like the film and um, you know uh, are motivated to to take action from it and and share the message. So that's that's really nice to hear. Um, you know, we we were inspired by both the um, the Netflix documentary Our Planet um, and also the, the the previous film we made with Silverback called Our Planet Our Business. But the noises were coming from the industry and from us and from other places saying, you know, the story of what the finance sector can do has not really been told. Um, finance is a business, yes, but also quite a specific one with its own drivers, and it uh, warrants uh, its own film in this sense in order to be very crystal clear on what the finance sector needs to do, how it's kind of inadvertently contributed to, to the decline in nature, which is quite stark. I mean, since 1970, losing on average 68% of wildlife um, is a staggering number, and it's not only going to affect you know when you're on holiday and what animals you'll see or what habitat we've lost, as as tragic as that is, it's affecting our entire financial economic system and our way of life. There's no um, mincing words about that. So the film needed to be made, um, and I think it, given everything going on on the policy side, um, the investor side, the investor engagement side, um, you know, our hope is that it can help to to drive the agenda forward and be true to the science, which is saying that we really have this decade until 2030 for meaningful action. And we tried to drive that that message home quite clear. Um, you know, while we have 2050 commitments that are, are in the right direction, that 20 years for me is, is, is a very long time and uh, we would have lost the game by then. So um, we're hoping this can help incentivize meaningful action this decade. And the finance sector, you know, has a critical role to play. It's not, it's not a silver bullet. It's not as if we're saying the finance sector has to save the planet. I think it's about how it can really play its role, how it can reorient itself in order to, to serve people and planet and to you know, safeguard long-term returns. And to your point that it's not just about the finance sector, I think the title is so powerful, you know, Our Planet Too Big to Fail, because it sort of makes you think, well, hang on a minute, we, we, we bailed out the finance sector back in 2008. Um, but yet we don't seem to be prepared to bail out the planet, it seems. Yeah, it's a good point. I remember sitting within the global bank uh, in 2007-8. And my feeling was, 
we should let this system fail. You know, we, we should figure out where the market's going to clear, even if it means my job, my friend's jobs, um, you know, a bit of calamity, the markets more than we already have. But without that clearing of, of, of the market, you know, we don't know what's truth. And, uh, you know, obviously that didn't happen. And, and the government's decided to, to bail out the banks. And what that meant was you didn't know which banks were solvent. You didn't know who was carrying what product because it was all sort of bailed out by, by taxpayer money. Uh, and some of the bigger banks, um, big banks got even bigger through the subsequent years. Um, so I agree with you. That's, uh, you know, it's a much easier case to make in terms of um, saving the planet in theory. Obviously, in practice, there's uh, lots of vested interests and other things going on that um, we haven't made the necessary investment um, in ourselves, in our planet, in order to, to safeguard our future, which we would like to see change. So you touched on it briefly there, but what are the lessons do you think the financial sector can really learn from the global financial crash and apply to this impending planetary threat? I think for me, the one of the critical decisions made um, a while ago was around this trade-off of efficiency versus resilience. So the finance sector and the wider business sector has gone down the path of saying, let's be the most efficient possible at the expense of resilience. And you know, from the COVID pandemic to the banking crisis, we see what if you had a resilient system, what that could actually result in. And so what I would like to see is a reorientation towards resiliency and away from efficiency, because being resilient means you can better weather these massive storms when they arise. Um, and I think you would have seen um, a much different response in the markets to the global financial crisis. And I think to, to safeguard long-term return um, you know, for, for people and planet, um, to safeguard people's retirement, to, to safeguard um, you know children's future when people are saving for them, a resilient system is going to be a lot more effective, um, or at least dialing up that aspect of of that trade-off, you know, towards resilience and away from only efficiency. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, well, maybe let's start to dive down into the details of how that can be done. There are these. Um, five recommendations to the financial sector made in the documentary. Um, and we'd just love to go through them one by one with you so we can sort of get into the details of them. Um, the first one, understand and minimize your risks. I love this one because, you know, the finance sector thinks in terms of risks. So that language barrier, if there was one between nature and, and finance has been sort of overcome there. Um, I do think, however, that, the you know, we hear these really large numbers like, um, poll pollinators contribute 500 billion a year to the global food production. And um, it's quite hard to translate that into doing business or thinking about your own investments and, and the risk of losing pollinators and what that means. So I just wondered if you could share with us um, a business specific example of how biodiversity loss can make it more costly or even impossible for some companies co to continue doing business. Sure. We, we did some work in India recently um, with WWF India, and what we found was obviously water risk in India, as, as most people know, is quite severe. Um, it's one of the countries most hard hit by, um, you know, uh, constant water crises. Um, and when we were there, we saw it firsthand and we were able to speak to farmers about the, the, the plight that they're in, which is quite severe. Um, but when we did the analysis looking at the Indian banking sector, what we found was that 
Indian banks are exposed, um, 40% of their loan book is exposed to, to areas of high water risk, uh, to, set, to sectors with high water risk. And that 40% figure was quite surprising. You know, it, it is much higher than we would have expected. Um, we, I think it was picked up in, in, in country as well. So we had um, engagement from policymakers and engagement all the way through up to the prime minister's office. So it, um, you know, a figure like that where we were saying, look, this is a material risk. Um, it's going to affect loans in the big Indian banks. Um, and obviously that means potential write-offs um, and, um, you know, loan impairment, et cetera, uh, at scale. Not, you know, here's a couple of percent we're talking about. Uh, it doesn't mean that the whole 40% will go down the drain, of course. This is, this, is high, um, this is high exposure sectors, but it gives you a sense of how big the crisis is, the role of the banks, what could happen, um, and how banks in India actually need to get a handle on water risk in order to integrate that into their, you know, how they view bank lending in the country. So, so that was, you know, a, a sobering, but actually really interesting stat. And we, um, we did a, a report on it, um, which is available as well. Thanks, Ray. I think it's really helpful just to see how it feeds through into financial sector risk. And um, presumably, there are risks beyond physical risks, too. I don't know if you can share some of those examples with us. Sure, I can. I can try. That's a difficult question. Um, <laughs> in a way, it's the confluence of risks now that I would be paying strong attention to. So now, what we're seeing is reputational risk, operational risk, supply chain risk, litigation risk, um, and risk from um, you know losing future customers. You're having all these risks that basically make a business reason quite credible for the finance sector to act on this agenda. So I don't think it's necessary to transpose, you know, some of the ecological numbers down to, to hard financial numbers in order to make the case. It's, it's, it's almost thinking about the fact that the employees that are working at these institutions um, and the uh, future customers are all going in one direction, complementing the policy moves. And if one doesn't, orient, reorient itself, uh, themselves, then you're going to face a, a headwind of risks from various different ways. And, um, and then, you, you know, you can help to quantify some of that. Um, you know, just look at millennials. I mean, I think by 2030, they're going to hold five times more wealth than they do today. Um, and these millennials are putting environment, social, climate um, imperatives at the center of how they want to see their money invested. This once in a generation wealth transfer, you know, 30 trillion over the next three decades is is beginning to happen, but it's going to take it's going to take some time. But the point is that it's happening now. It's starting now already. Um, and it, it it makes sense for financial institutions to, to get behind it. I mean, the other way to look at it is things like litigation risk, which can hurt the bottom line very quickly is already happening. There are, are banks being taken to court around um, you know, possible breaches of, of, of soft and hard law. This is already happening today. So you know, that there, is, there are risks that are, that are long-term and that'll take time to materialize. And then there's others that are, that are happening. I mean, insurance losses are another one where um, you're already seeing a staggering amount of insurance losses in the last decade because of weather-related events. Um, and, you know, you will see various write downs as well um, happening and, and happening now within the banking sector, the writings on the wall, so to speak. So, so you will have companies that respond positively to that, uh, who will survive and, and possibly thrive. And those who won't will cease to exist. So I think that um, I think that to me, if I, if I was back in the finance sector, that would be the motivating factor to get on this agenda. The fact that it's now 
core to mainstream business model and to surviving in 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 this future one solution to supporting the financial community and beyond in analyzing that risk is the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, the TNFD, um, and the informal working group that launched in September. Our own CEO is co-chair of that informal working group. And WWF are obviously instrumental with the UN and Global Canopy in getting that going. Um, what's the response been from the finance sector regarding the TNFD? I think it's it's early days to tell on the TNFD because it's only now you know beginning to get formed. Um, but... I think the interest from the finance sector is is certainly there, and we would encourage financial institutions to get involved to help help set this very complex framework. Um, you know, I think the finance sector is a lot more advanced on climate, clearly, and you have the analog being the TCFD, the Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosure. Um, but it's uh, it's one that um, the the reception is there in terms of the a tool that can be used to help address nature risk. Um, but I don't think it's uh, you know as widespread, or it hasn't really uh, well, hasn't really got started yet to, in order to figure out how it'll um, you know get through to kind of policy uh, discussions as well. Right. So I think that leads on perfectly to action two, which is declare and halt your negative impact. Um, clearly, this is the best way to avoid the risks that we've just discussed in action one. But I think the key question that jumps out immediately there is why aren't banks doing this already? You know, what's currently stopping them, for example? lending to companies with mass deforestation in the Amazon in their supply chains? I think banks have a tremendous ability to get a handle on their risks and their financed emissions, you know, through their, through their what, what in, in terms of their own supply chain. Um, but they haven't focused enough on um, the environment in order to do that. So if to, to your deforestation question, you know, the, the question they need to be asking is, where am I exposed? Um, who am I lending to that then have onward exposure to, um, you know, high deforestation countries and companies, um, be it Brazil, Indonesia, et cetera, um, and, and, and having traceability, you know, through their own supply chain. It's completely doable. Some of the metrics are not completely there, but I also feel like if, if an investment is made from the bank side to understand that, um, then they will get their, their, their heads around it. And I think the, the business case is being... Um, uh, formulated more, and certainly demand from the public and stakeholders is has changed to make this um, uh, a pressing issue. So I think, as we've seen on climate, banks will certainly have to get their head around um, their deforestation, embedded deforestation risk, and what they can do to kind of minimize their loan exposure in that area, and ultimately, ideally, help to actually solve help solve this problem, because we're losing the lungs of the planet, and that's going to affect the climate system as well. It's great to hear you say it's completely doable. I think a lot of the time people just worry that it isn't possible at the minute. And to hear you say that, I think it's more that it's just a question of the will today and that the data is there and that it can now be done, which is obviously fantastic. Yeah. And and I mean, you know, I remember being within a bank and the amount of data and uh, spreadsheets and and capital you know, available to, to look at issues is when it's prioritized is quite large. Um and I think, you know, with the advent of spatial finance and spatial data and satellites, there's there's loads of information that's beginning to be uh, put online. And um, I think, as you say, it's about the will to invest some time, some proper time and resource. This is not one or two people's side of desk. This is saying, look, this is a business critical issue. It's a planet critical issue. You know, we want to understand our exposure and, and really reduce it. And we're going to do that. I think that's completely doable. And, you know, we help figure it out along the way, just like everything else. You don't need to have a perfectly formed solution. 
in order to get started meaningfully. And then you look at examples of, you know, like ASN Bank, a smallish um, Dutch bank that has measured its biodiversity um, footprint, if you will, across its portfolio. And now, of course, has joined together with other Dutch um, financial institutions to launch PBAF. Um, so it just shows it can be done, as you say, if if the will is there, if it's, if it's being done already by by some banks. Yes, agree. There is, um, I think, those initiatives and kind of, you know, leaders that are trying and trialing things and will learn along, on, along the way um, will help the market grow. Um, and it, it's about doing meaningful action in line with what the science is saying. So, you know, in the film, we talk about um, having, you know, that we need to collectively have our emissions by 2030 um, and, and, and halt the destruction of nature. A bank needs to figure out, and some banks are already doing this, you know, how are they going to do that? Um, and some have made commitments similar to that without actually knowing how they're going to achieve it. And, and that's completely fine. And then you kind of bring in the experts and you figure out how you're going to achieve it. But setting that target in line with the science, not a arbitrary target that's, you know, too far away and not credible enough uh, is the way is the way to go. So action three then is consider all stakeholders in the decision making. Um, this one's key. And I think, again, it relates back to what we've just been saying about certain banks are starting to measure their emissions and actually work on halting it. Because like we said earlier, there are more investors that are interested in this now. Um, but one thing as we move from shareholder primacy to more stakeholder primacy that we want to know is, you know, nature's never really been considered as a stakeholder. And as we make that transition, is it too much of a stretch to also make nature part of the stakeholder group? No, I think nature um, should be part of the stakeholder, wider stakeholder group. It's the the one that has no voice, unfortunately. Then um, we need to give nature a voice. Um, so while, you know, I think the wider stakeholder model should include um, communities and customers and employees and civil society um, why not nature be um, also pinned in there as a as a stakeholder that um, businesses, financial institutions need to pay attention to and orient around? I mean, we can't. We are we do live within a one planet constraint. You know, we we we're operating like we don't, but you can't actually change that. There is a physical boundary. We can only blow through the limits for so long until we get um, you know tipping points and cascading effects and and horrendous things that could happen. So we've got to stop pretending that we live in more than one planet. Um, and in a way, that's kind of answering your question of, of putting nature back into, um, you know, as a stakeholder and orienting life around limits that we already know. Well, nature might not have a voice, but the film's giving it a voice. You're here now giving it a voice. And hopefully people who listen to this can go out and shout about it and give it a bit more of a voice as well. Thanks. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> Um, so moving on to action four, seize new opportunities. Um, another one of my faves here, um, there's a massive gap in the financing of the restoration of nature. Uh, the recent report from Paulson Institute, for example, as you all well know, is put the average annual funding gap at something like $700 billion a year. Um, and, you know, you hear that and then we hear also that there's this wall of money looking to invest in nature, yet then you go and speak to those investors and they'll say, mm, but there's a lack of investable projects. So what do we need to do to build the pipeline of investable projects in nature in order for us to put money back into the restoration of nature? Well, I think there's two questions here. One is um, addressing the 
brown side of financing or investing because even probably more important than investing in sort of you know pure nature projects would be to stop investing in things that are destroying nature so it's the flip side of the coin it's the bigger side of the coin and then as you say we need to grow the kind of solution space which is already growing i mean from the alternative i mean just look at the alternative protein market how quickly you know that has grown in the last um, only in the last few years um, and obviously, you've seen a widespread increase in uh, electric vehicles and in renewable energy and in waste treatment and, and water management. I mean, these are these are now real fledging sectors um, and the green economy is becoming a sector in itself. So obviously, it's not ne- necessarily the size of the entirety of the brown economy, but that switch is happening. And I think it's about that rebalancing, getting away from the brown financing. Mm-hmm. And then moving, moving and helping to grow um, the green side of things. I mean, you, you can do that with a variety of, of, of ways um, in terms of bringing deals together, um, you know, in order to get scale, um, engaging policymakers to help set um, the rules in the right place and allow certain investments. You know, there, there's things that need to be done and already happening in the market. Um, but I would approach it from that from that dual point of view. Um, and it's very important that the the brown financing is 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 reduced because the risk is that financial institutions say, oh great, we'll just invest a bit in um, you know this green bond or in this project, and you know everything's sorted. And clearly, that's not the case. They have to really look at you know financing the dirty industries of today and transition that to um, you know the clean industries of tomorrow. I think, like you said, that the opportunities are really endless. And as Helen said, I think this is probably my favorite one. And I think any financial institution that watches the film, they should get excited by this one because climate change, I think the key thing we need to get across is that being environmentally responsible does not mean that your returns have to go down. If anything, it means that there are all these great new opportunities for you to jump into. Um, So whilst we're on the topic of new opportunities, the pandemic obviously has changed the conversation massively. And it'd be good to know what opportunities you think the pandemic has caused. How has it changed the conversation around these issues? I think the first thing the pandemic has probably done is is in people's minds kind of linked nature to the economy to finance. You know, we, we it's helped us as as tragic and as sad as it has been and will probably continue to be. Um, it's at least helped people understand that these these links are important. We can't ignore nature. Um, you know, we do that at our own peril. The silver lining for sustainable finance is that um, if anything. Things have only gathered pace. You know, everyone's uh, generally working from home or uh, remote working, um, but the the momentum on sustainable finance has only increased. They, and not just the momentum, but the commitments from industry um, that are that are coming out recently, the pressure um, building, the campaigns forming. This is all just gathered pace, and to me, that's great evidence that that's a this is a big trend, and it's not being uh, you know blown away by by quite a serious health pandemic. Um, we just have to kind of work work through that. And in fact, if we design a sustainable, resilient financial system, that will only help against future shocks as well. Which leads us on to action number five, help build the new system we need. Um, so it, it's not about just about finance, as you said at, at the beginning. It's about the entire system from policy changes to individual choices. Are you seeing a greater collaboration between governments and the financial sector and environmental NGOs um, to work together on tackling biodiversity loss? I mean, obviously, the TNFD is an example of that. But um, what's your sense of how that collaboration is coming together? 
I am seeing more willingness to collaborate across sectors, across policy, government, um, regulators, industry. You know, so in some countries in continental Europe, it's probably the most advanced, I would say. Um, and we need that that collaboration in order to, to get the, the solutions we need. But I mean, one example, um, I was lucky enough to go to, to Bretton Woods last year, which uh, is a place in the United States, um, almost unimaginable now with no one really traveling. Um, but anyway, and if you go back in history, you know, the original Bretton Woods agreement that um, was formed around the end of the Second World War, you had 750 white men gathering at Bretton Woods in New Hampshire for pretty much three weeks to essentially design the future of economic um, and, and financial world order. Uh, and in three weeks, they kind of did that. I mean, we still live with... Um, you know, those those decisions made uh, during that time. And out of that, you've got the World Bank, um, the WTO, the US dollar as the as the standard. So I think, you know, we should never waste a good crisis. And there's no reason why we can't um, think about system change and the system we want and create it because the financial system is just a, a, an arbitrary um, system created by humans. Um, and there's lots of good things in it. But clearly, we've lost our way when it comes to um, sharing of wealth and also um, on uh, the environment and, and climate uh, issues and how finance can play a role and how it can become really a resilient system that works for all. And there's no reason why, if we have the will and willingness, we can't redesign that for the better. Yeah, we agree completely. I think systemic change can sound like a worrying concept. As you said, it's happened before and it can, it can of course, happen again. Um, honing in more on specifically financial change. It'd be great to hear about any financial solutions that you've seen work for nature that you think could be replicated and thus scaled up in the next few years. Um, for example, any blended finance or government guarantee structures that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, we can definitely talk about those structures and I'll, I'll give you some thoughts that I have. I think the, the other bigger question is actually changing the mainstream structures in order to get them to work. So, I mean, one, ex I guess I'll put it uh, with an example where we have been working recently on sovereign debt. So this is quite a large asset class. And the way that um, investors can uh, invest in this market means that they can also engage with those governments about how they're um, safeguarding their natural capital. Um, and that is a huge lever because the sovereign debt market is almost about half the, the total of the outstanding global issuance. So it's just gigantic. Um, so, we should also be working on, and, and we do sort of on green and blue bonds and the kind of specific solution sets, but um, we should also be working on the main mainstream markets and figuring out how we integrate nature better into mainstream investment decision-making, which you know is possible. And we recently came out with the, uh, an index with 91, formerly Investec Asset Management, to show how we could potentially do this in the sovereign debt market. Um, and so I think that's the approach that makes sense to me. Ray, thanks for running us through all five of the actions there. Um, I think it's safe to say that if all five of those action plans are rolled out across the globe, then real systemic change will start to happen. Um, be great to hear how the documentary has been received so far. I mean, outside of the glowing praise that Helen and I have given it, <laughs> Helen and I, <laughs> this, this is our life. We, we look at this every day. Um, how's it being received in, in the wider world? I've been humbled since we launched the film, really, about the reception we've seen. I mean, a global um, response, positive response um, about the film, the messages, the clarity. We've had over 70, 70 screening requests at 
financial institutions, which we've already started doing, you know, translation requests in um, nine languages already. Uh, it, so it's been great. And, and I think, um, you know, that's the point. We want people to use it. Um, and uh, I think most pertinently, we want people to take action, convince their institutions, and even as individuals in line with what the science is saying. And I think we can make a real difference. And this is the decade to do it. That's really heartening to hear. It can often feel a bit hopeless, this fight. And to hear the response you've got there, that's that's fantastic. Um, you mentioned that it's incentivizing action by individuals already. And one thing we're really trying to do is get across to our listeners, you know, many of whom work in the finance sector or in governments and in nonprofits, that there are things they can do. So what would you recommend an individual who watches the film or listens to this could do today through their work or outside? Yeah, I mean, one thing that really hit me was when my son was born, this was now seven years ago, um, I remember saying, okay, well, I want to, you know, put some money aside every every quarter, every month, whatever it ends up being, um, you know, that he can then use um, when he's 18. And you know, for for education or other re- other purposes. And what I found was it was very difficult to find um, a, what I would deem a sustainable product that um, that I could put that in. That has changed. There's certain certainly more coming online. But for me, I didn't want to save money in a way that would um, lead to a degradation of the very future for him that I'm saving for. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. So I think for me, the the JISA or the junior investment, uh, the the junior ISA is one where it was a clear uh, alignment of, of values with uh, with with purpose and and intent, and I think um, you can certainly find, and I did find, one that um, that lined up. But so I think for for individuals, there's everything from your your child, what you're saving for your children for the future, to you know where you're banking and are you happy with where they're um, they're lending your money? Have you asked the question? Obviously, pensions is a, is a big area where um, you know you're saving in the beginning for quite a long time. Um, and do you know where your pension is invested, uh, and are you happy with that? I think um, you know, as an individual, obviously there's no right or wrong answer. It's about um, aligning your values to your investments. But most people haven't even checked. And in fact, as an individual, where your pension is is one of the most impactful ways you can actually make change when it comes to the environmental agenda. Um, so not to diminish uh, at all other other ways of uh, of taking individual action, but most people have um, completely ignored uh, their financial footprint, and that's where um, they can in fact have the most impact. And we're beginning to see that now, starting to change. I think that's exactly it. We keep coming back to that um, with the people we talk to, and and during these podcasts, that it we, there are many things we can all do on an individual individual basis to help stop biodiversity loss and um uh, and slow down climate change but it really the, the biggest thing we can do is think about where we're putting our money so i really appreciate you sort of emphasizing this point to to our listeners so thank you so much ray and on that it's been such a pleasure having you on it's been such a rich conversation um i'm just so grateful for you for coming and sharing sharing about this really important topic with us and and that's it from us. If you want to check out the documentary, Our Planet Too Big to Fail, you can find it for free on ourplanet.com or on the WWF website. But again, thanks, Ray, for your time. Um, and we uh, look forward to, to hearing from you again. Thanks, Helen and Ryan. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And um, yeah, please get in touch with, with any questions. And um, yeah, look forward to maybe being on another podcast at some point. We hope so. Cheers, Ray. <laughs> 
Wow, so so many thought-provoking and inspiring points there made by Ray. What do you think, Ryan? Yeah, so many. Lots for the listeners to take away and mull over back at home. Um, I really enjoyed what he was saying at the end there, though, about how everyone's thinking should relate to their children and how their finances um, contribute to the degradation of the world their children are going to have to live in. Um, you know my opinions on this. I just feel that when you make things emotional like that, it really inspires people to make a difference. Um, you know, at the risk of plugging another WWF and Silverback film, the new Netflix film uh, with David Attenborough, Life on Our Planet, has this really powerful part where it talks about how the song of the humpback whales helped instigate the movement that helped ban whaling in most of the countries across the world. And I just hope that films like this and making that emotional side with nature, with children, really helps the finance sector move similarly in, in, in the world now. Yeah, God love David Attenborough, well, Sir <laughs> David Attenborough, um, yeah. um, and I, I, I really appreciated what Ray said about Bretton Woods. You know, we often forget that systemic change has happened before, and can happen again. So very um, optimistic, I feel. And it should um, happen. It needs to. Yeah, yeah. But um, moving on, what do we have coming up? Yeah, so we'll be back, of course, in a couple of weeks with more on the ground solutions. Um, bit of a change of pace next time. We're going to be talking around the policy landscape that's hoping to enable the flow of private capital that we always talk about. And for that, we're going to be joined by Conservative MP and Minister for Business, Energy and Clean Growth, Kwasi Kwarteng. Very excited about that. Uh, really looking forward to it. And Helen, you're back next time with another fireside. Yes, that's right. I Also, I'm back uh, next week with uh, the wonderful John Elkington, founder of Volens and author of many books, including the latest one, Green Swans, The Coming Boom in Regenerative Capitalism. Which we have, of course, Helen, just finished in our Green Finance Institute book club, which Indeed. I'm sure is just pure coincidence. <laughs> no, I know. I was just making everyone else do the homework for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's it for today. Do let us know if you have any comments, feedback, ratings. Of course, we welcome and don't forget to subscribe in all the usual places you get your podcasts from. And thanks for listening to Green is the New Finance. Green is the New Finance is brought to you by the Green Finance Institute with audio production by Fairly Media. Fairly Media.